0: right here we are
1: here we are welcome back welcome back and this is science in between science look at us
0: with scott and ollie i'm ollie that's ollie that's ollie over there
1: that's scott there yeah that's that guy and this is episode 44 which i have no jokes or anything for 44 nothing no
0: Nothing. nothing at all divisible by 11 or and four two two perfect squares yeah. in a row like four and four
1: i don't think that's how it works if they're side by side you know they're not really that's a, make...
0: that seems like that's just an arbitrary rule and math is just a bunch of arbitrary rules so i could make a new arbitrary rule that says i'm going to treat them as separate digits and now it's right. two perfect squares in a row okay we'll
1: see how that how that works out for you yeah yeah
0: no, <laughs> wait someday someday the, the mcdonald theorem it'll be you know, it'll uh, be in some math journal somewhere
1: I I have to say that last night I was uh talking to a mutual friend of ours uh who is celebrating a wedding anniversary coming up. Oh, and right. yeah, and I said, "Oh, what what year?" And he said, "We're in our prime."
0: No, we did not. He
1: did say it, and oh. he said cuz it's it's their 19th wedding anniversary. So yeah. props to our friends uh Jason and Patty. So uh yeah, how cool is that, huh? That's pretty cool except for prime. the part where he no. said he's in his
0: prime.
1: <laughs> he did. <laughs> he said else-
0: Everything else is awesome. I'm, I'm yeah. so happy for mostly, uh, mostly Jason that he's lucky to keep Patty around. But I know.
1: Oh my gosh, that's like magic right there. That's like that's smoke and mirrors. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. So, so what are we talking about today, Scott? What are we? I
0: don't taking- know. I don't know, Ollie. Maybe, maybe we're just. <laughs> I got it. I've got an idea. How about Wait. this? How about this? How about we talk about conceptual change?
1: Which is a radical departure from where we've been. So I, I will have to say that like I threw this out as an option because we've been talking about like a lot of this like social learning stuff over the last few weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sociocultural stuff over the last stuff. like stuff. Stuff. We just put it in the big basket of stuff. Yeah. Right. And I thought that it would be worthwhile for us to kind of go into like a little bit more of like a cognitive perspective, right? And and this is, you know, I mean that's how you would you would characterize that as this, right? Sure. Oh, absolutely. This is, yeah.
0: this is sort of the, the consummate um, contemporary uh th- cognitive theory of learning, right? Like yeah. it is, it is, if, if you are in science, uh, in science, specifically. well, I think, I think generally, I think in educational psychology generally oh, yeah. conceptual changes, it, a lot of the work was done in science. And I think part of that historically is that, um, you know, National Science Foundation funds stuff. And so you get a lot of stuff done in science and math because, um, because of that, especially at the secondary level, um, elementary, early grades, you get a lot of like IES, like Department of Education funding for those folks. But, um, but yeah, I mean, research is a funded thing, right? And so it has an influence um, uh, on what kind of research gets done. (laughs) So the article we're talking uh, and this is
1: a pretty seminal it is a uh, a huge article in science yeah. education. Yeah, <clears throat> It's a accommodation of a scientific conception toward a theory of conceptual change and this is Posner Strike Husen and Gertzog from 1982. 1982
0: from the sci- way, way
1: back machine. Right, I know. It's like This is pre like you and I are like in middle school, right? When this is this is
0: coming out. Yeah, I think I was a freshman in high school when this came out. Maybe, yeah.
1: So So. pretty pretty wild that this goes back, and and this is where it you know they introduced this idea of assimilation and accommodation and how to undergo you know the well this conceptual ecology they threw out that term too right introduced this phrase of conceptual uh, ecology. As like how people organize concepts in their brain and they outlaw also outline different conditions for, you know, causing conceptual change for students and so there's a lot in this, it is not an easy read though it is not an easy read because
0: you think you found it you found it more of a struggle.
1: Well, here's the here's the reason why. Like after reading, you know, really accessible stuff like Levenwanger last week, and then reading the Lemke stuff too, you know, two or three episodes ago, you know, I just uh I just felt like, uh, so I'll I'll like get at it right from the beginning because I I think get that I'll get at it. Like so when we were re- when we talked about the Lemke article, and also with the you know Levenwanger, that the examples they provide. Are ones that you can either you've had experience with as a, as a teacher mm. or it's something that you feel like you can visualize or think about but the all of the all of the experience all of the thing that they draw upon here is the discussion of special relativity,
0: yeah <laughs> right which yeah. is
1: like so you know, out there, right? It is like so out there. And as you and I both have experience teaching physics, like the number of times we've taught special relativity that I've taught special relativity is like I can count them on a hand, you know? Yeah. Like it's just something that isn't taught in high school um much because it's just so like it, yeah. it And, and what's, what's really interesting is that this is one of those things where they outline these conditions. And I think the example that they're providing actually doesn't fit the conditions they're saying, right? Like, Mm. uh, one of the conditions they say is that it's got to be something uh, intelligible for the students, right? And also applicable for them, right? And neither of these are like, like, really, like, special relativity, like, we didn't really have applications for special relativity until we started to get into satellites and things. Right. It's yeah. like, it's like those, there's not like a ton of applications, a lot of thought experiments, but not like yeah. all of these, like, you're not going to walk down the street and say, Oh, well, let me pull out my special relativity tool today. You know, it's just not something we, 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 we really do. Right. So right. having it and they're setting the, this, their conversation is with students in a college setting, but even a college setting, Honestly, like you and I both have degrees in physics, like special relativity is something that really wasn't, I spent much more time talking about like, um, you know, states of electron, electron states and, you know, statistical yeah. mechanics and things like that, Than mm-hmm. I, and just by maybe the nature of my program that I was in, but that was just not something that was really, really, um, yeah, it's just, yeah. it was out, it's out there. It's,
0: yeah. Well, let's, uh, and let's, uh, as we do, let's take a step back. Cause we jumped, I, jumped deep. You went right to the middle of the guts of it. So let's take a step back sorry. and say, that's okay. That's okay. You know, it's that's why wrong. I'm here. That's why I'm here is to, to, to be, you know, say, whoa, 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 uh, <laughs> keep your powder dry. Hold on there, fella. Um, so, uh, so first of all, let's just say, so, so these, these folks, these guys, cause they're all guys, um, We're at Cornell University and they're basically philosophers of science. Like they're in, that's, that's their, that's their jam, so to speak. So, so they are bringing to bear on learning theory, um, Thomas Kuhn's uh, scientific revolutions, ideas of scientific revolutions. So, so he, they're taking this very, uh, you know, historical, sociological notion of that, that's this philosopher of science developed and applying it to learning theory so um so they're they're science nerds and they're history oh, philosophy nerds. nerds right right and they're basically physics people too on top of it which is why you get the relativity as the example because that's what they had access and, to. and
1: they're coming from cornell university yeah so come on i know
0: i mean and they're not in the hotel management which is the, the right. strong program that's a very strong program right so but they're, so they're coming i'm instead. just said Right. <laughs> instead, instead, they're they're in the education department, which I think actually I should be careful saying this, but I feel like Cornell dissolved their education department. Really? But anyway, we're we're that's that's a that's a story for another day when I can actually fact check that. I don't know that that's the right. case, but I will say that these guys uh were were um at Cornell when Greg Kelly, our mutual friend and friend of the show, Greg Kelly, was there and getting getting his PhD. So he was influenced. That's why he's such a history and uh, philosophy sure. nerd. So anyway, but that, Greg so, is
1: Greg isn't a conceptual change guy though. He's not. No, like,
0: no, no. He's not. Yeah. He's not. No. Yeah. No. Um, but but the the reason I think that's important. There's a couple reasons that's important. One is that um that this theory is very rational, and they sure. call it out like the second page. Our central commitment is this study. In this study, is that learning is a rational activity, yeah. and I think. If you understand nothing else about the way that conceptual change theory works or thinks about learning, you need to understand that because everything's predicated on the idea that that humans are rational and that the way we develop theories is a very rational process. Yeah. And that's Um, and and that's what
1: and I keep going with the next sentence that says uh, that is learning is fundamentally coming to comprehend and accept ideas because they're seen as intelligible and rational. Right, which I think gets gets at the heart of my criticism about you know, you know, using special relativity as the example.
0: Right? Yeah, well, there's a lot to criticize here. I think, <laughs> um, yeah, it's I I do think you're right. It, it is a very esoteric to use a a term the, of the show term of the show term of the show. Um, a very esoteric science concept to use as your example of how people learn right i mean it's really really an edge case as you said so it's not you know this is not a oh let's understand newton's three laws kind of thing this is way out on the fringe of of physics so yeah that's definitely a problem and um but i think we can you know unpack some of this uh, um these you know the well uh, should we start with accommodation and and uh assimilation because i think, I think those are sort of the key concepts and then we can work down into these criteria.
1: Yeah, so i think what we we should do is try to take an un, as much of an unbiased perspective of like uh, outlining their ideas and then then we'll rip it apart because i think that there's a uh, lot to rip apart here. No, i mean we could just go, you know, no, no, I, mean, I i think
0: no, i think that's a good idea. I think it's right. good to be clear that what they're saying before yeah. we say what we're saying about it.
1: Yeah, and I feel like before the end of this episode we'll probably talk about the private universe. I feel like that's going to come up here because I think that's very likely. Yes, that it,
0: In fact, it just did. So there it is. So that, right. Your prediction is proven correct. <laughs> right. Um, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Private universe. Private universe. But, but let's uh, so so the so the thing I think that's fascinating is um for me is that um you know, there's so many words that we use in the English language. This isn't true in physics. And we've talked about this in the context of physics, but we haven't talked about it that much in the context of education that we use and just assume that we know what the meaning are and, and that it has a sort of stable, clear meaning that everybody agrees right. on. And so concept is a, is a perfect example of this, right? Like we talk about concepts all the time. Oh, I've got the concept. You've got the con do you, do you have the concept? It's like, yeah, I have the concept. And um, but but they're like that idea it was created, right? Like that sure. the idea of a concept was created. And and in many respects, it was created by articles, not exactly this article per se, but by this this lineage of of research. Um and so so But I just I, to I take would a... argue I would argue that they take a little bit of a different perspective on concepts than like
1: we would have like the everyday person. Like I think they see sure. it as and understanding, but like, if you look at the, like, I, like the footnote on page two, right? This is like, Hey, this is, this is how we see the world. It says in this article, the terms commitments, concept concepts and conceptions are equivalent. And I would never put commitment and conceptions as, as being equivalent. Right. I wouldn't. Yeah. Would
0: you? Like No. And they do, they do some stuff with, um, you know, like talking about, how how those sort of epistemic commitments and other kinds of commitments influence concepts. I mean, that, in some sense, that's almost a little sloppy here. But but what I will say is that so so their idea. Let's just say this, right? So their idea of a concept is a concept is a sort of mental structure that is in your head, um, and it is uh, it is a, a set of connected ideas or facts. Um, and that, that, and that sits within what they describe as a conceptual ecology, which means all these concepts are also interconnected with each other. And so, so you have this sort of big web of connected ideas in your head. And I think a lot of people think about learning and and knowing in that way. I think that uh, sort of Fundamental to the way that we talk about learning and and knowing things, Um, but, but they're describing that, right? So they're saying, look, here's, here's how it works. You've got this mental structure in your head, and you use it in the world uh, to help you, you know, work to do stuff. And you, um, and then they talk, then what their goal is to say, well, how does that thing change? Like, you've got this thing in your head. How does that thing change? Right. Yeah, and they, so they, and it, it is,
1: I think they, they definitely draw on this is where the, the Kuhn stuff comes in, right? Is that like yeah. that's all coming from like you know Kuhn's work and like how you know you know scientific thought happens and yeah. you know so Kuhn so, has
0: this idea of like normal science and, and right. then these par and this is paradigm paradigm shifts, right? Yeah. So you everybody's heard that term also um comes from Kuhn's work. Yeah.
1: And so they, that's where they introduce these two ideas of assimilation and accommodation, like how how we make changes to that and see these things as being different, right? Um, one being assimilation, um, and the other being accommodation. You want to unpack those for? Because I think sure. that, you teach this.
0: You teach this. I teach art, this. You teach this, and this yeah. is right, or or it's part of my class. I don't know. It is part it of it. it. Well, yeah, you teach yeah, it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah so basically assimilation and accommodation are aligned with Thomas Kuhn's notions of normal science and these paradigmatic shifts right so what the idea of normal science and assimilation both is that you're slowly just accumulating adding to and making more rich your existing understandings of something right so the, so you're not it's not a big transformation you're just adding things and and so assimilation all of this is about like i've got a concept in my head and i've now been introduced some new piece of information or some new experience or something. And I got to figure out how it fits. So if it, if I, if the structure that I have in my head matches up, generally speaking with the thing that's happening in the world, then I can just sort of assimilate that. I add it to the existing structure. It makes it a little more robust. It makes it a little clearer or whatever, you know, it, it makes it better, whatever better means, right. Sure. Probably more rational, ex- more explanatory, whatever. So I've got this, Um, but every once in a while you get a thing that conflicts strongly with what's in your head. Um, and then in, in the scenario that they're describing, there's lots of reasons why that, why nothing could happen at that point, but let's assume you you are going to have a big change. You have what, what these strike and Posner talk about as, uh, accommodation or a a conceptual change right so you reorganize your web based on this new information so you've created a new structure out of the old structure and sort of wow this is like you know the aha moment and this leads to all sorts of approaches to teaching and all this other stuff but that's the basics right so assimilation means you just sort of are adding to the existing structure and making it more robust or or richer um and then accommodation is like, "Wow, I've got this thing, and now I've got to restructure my whole understanding."
1: yeah, th- th- what's I guess the hard part for me with those those terms, like I think um, like assimilation, I can't hear that word, and this is like totally I, I know where you're going. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, you're going to the Borg. I am going to the Borg. I cannot hear it without thinking of Star Trek and the Borg, and the, and assimilation there is not a positive thing. It's not like, hey, everything. I'm just going to bring that in. It's like, it's like a, you know, it's a radical thing where the, the thing is brought into. And I guess I see the connection. Yeah, I guess it's just, I do. It's, it's similar. It is similar. Um, but accommodation is, I guess, the thing that as science teachers we want to work towards is to try to help from a conceptual persp- change perspective is that what we want to do is they come in with these and they talk they, like right from the beginning. They talk about misconceptions and alternative frameworks, right, which is, right. you know, a pretty pervasive still today uh, uh understanding of of students scientific understanding, right? And right. and that students come in with these misconceptions and they do. They just come in with alternative ways of of seeing the world because of their own experiences, right? And and their own prior knowledge. And and what what the uh, Posner and, and Strike and these folks um, are arguing is that we have to create conditions in which we have to, you know, help them accommodate rather than assimilate right because we we want them to like challenge their current conceptual ecology so that they replace it with something better right or something right. that and if we just present it in an intelligible rational way that we can help that change happen right i mean that's, right
0: it, well if if there is this conflict right so there has right. to be this initial conflict the second part about the intelligibility and, and we can go into those criteria in a second, I think, right. is sort of after that big moment of like, oh, this doesn't work. This doesn't help me understand the right. thing. Um, but I think even before that, we have to talk about the assumptions that are built into this that I think um, are are really interesting, pervasive, and um, potentially problematic, right? So in the sense that their presumption is that kids' ideas are wrong, right? Teacher and science ideas are right, and the purpose is to change kids' ideas to match science ideas, right? And that's built into misconceptions, right? Into that word. Mm -hmm. Miss meaning bad conception. So this is like saying all kids' ideas are bad, and we're trying to transform them into the correct good ones. And the, the way to do that, the best way to do that is to this radical transformation because... And this is what's similar to the bad Borg thing. If they've got a bad conception and they're just assimilating, all that's happening is their bad conception is getting more robust. And we can talk about now we can talk about private universe if you want. Yep. But but that idea that like, oh, well, assimilation into a, a misconception, quote unquote, misconception is um, is bad because it just makes it more and more robust and harder and harder to Get rid of, and all of that language, getting rid of replacing, transforming all of this is grounded in conceptual change theory in ways that we don't even recognize when we talk about um, learning so I yeah. think that's that 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 is the crux I think of of one of the challenges of this work is how they think about what it means to learn, and the idea that science ideas are correct and 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 kids' ideas are inherently incorrect. And by the way, this leads to twenty years of mis- misconceptions research, right. right? Where basically we just catalog all the ways that kids can get stuff. Yeah. my master's thesis wrong. was on
1: was on misconceptions because yeah. I was like right there in the midst of it. 1991, 92 was yeah, amen, brother. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was like that was the type of work that people were you know doing at the time was you know what kind of misconceptions and I think specifically it was around middle school uh, middle school students uh misconceptions around life sciences. You yeah. Know?
0: Well and, and putting that in context of the other stuff we've been talking about, right? Like your thesis is 9192. My my um uh master's in teaching was 9192. Um, that's the, the stuff that we've been reading prior to this, that's the sociocultural stuff that we were talking about, which right. is, it happens is just being published then. Sure. So it hasn't started to trickle down and impact certainly teacher education programs, but even educational research yet, it's just beginning to work its way into educational research in the, in the eighties and nineties. And so, um, so yeah, so of course we we were in teacher ed programs that were steeped in conceptual change because this was the dominant paradigm, um, and you could argue still mostly is the dominant paradigm. I, I would agree with that, and and we've
1: talked about this private universe, but I think I, we might have mentioned it in another episode, but this probably um, warrants a little more unpacking. Is that you know it was a uh, a research project? Where was it out of? It was out of was out of a Harvard. Out of Harvard, that's right, because they were using the Harvard graduates. Harvard and MIT
0: graduates, yeah.
1: Right. So what they were doing was uh, interviewing. So this is, you know, it's a video um, that you can find online and we can put it in the show notes that, I mean, it's fascinating. I've used this video for lots of other conversations, not just in science education, but other things as well, um, where they're interviewing these Harvard graduates. And some of these folks have degrees in physics and things, and they're you know, asking them about how the seasons change. And so, and when they're asking them, um, you know, these, and it's trying to show how pervasive these misconceptions that I'm using, I'm putting my fingers up in in quotations there, which you can't see because, because this is an audio format, Um, but uh, the, uh, they're asking them, you know, how they understand this changes of seasons. And then they also then switch to like a local elementary school, like down the street and they interview some students there and they really, they show that the, the way they understand, uh, the seasons are very similar that even though there's been probably 20 years of education between these, these groups of students that their understandings really haven't changed.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah that's so to it's...
1: show you the need for, you know, radical disruptions of people's conceptual ecologies.
0: That's right. Yeah. So it's it's and the other thing they talk about is uh, phases of the moon. So it's seasons yep. and oh, phases right. of the moon. That's right. And um, yeah. So the idea is like, look, these kids in middle school and elementary school have these ideas of how seasons work and how the moon phases work. And it turns out that after lots and lots of schooling, people still mostly have these ideas. And so that that's a fundamental argument for this sort of assimilation notion of learning and why um this article is so focused on accommodation because it's like well we can't just have assimilation because all that does is make these misconceptions more robust it doesn't it doesn't change them to these normative ideas and if and if you don't change those normative ideas early Basically, what happens is you get really strong, robust, assimilated, full uh, concepts that are wrong, that are misconceptions. So this is their premise, right? This is not – I want to emphasize that this is not true. This is their theory, and this is their explanation for a thing that – a phenomenon that happens, and there are other possible explanations, um, and we can talk about that later, but – the point is, this is their explanation, right? Is that kids develop these sort of notions about the way the world works. And then over time, they get more robust through assimilation of of new, uh, new ideas and new information and new external experience. And they get so robust that even after a bunch of college coursework, uh, they still have them.
1: Yeah. And so that private private universe 1987 so it's like yeah. five years after this and interesting is that uh i did a little you know googly. google search googly, right and uh so there's uh, some stuff on the annenberg uh site that we can put in the link and uh you know people from one of the uh folks not not necessarily from this article but another person from cornell is like talking about it in a yeah. in this you know so it's kind of Right in that wheelhouse of of these conceptual change theorists,
0: you know, and yeah, and these folks are like uh, Phil Sadler, who I, if memory serves, uh, is the the person behind the original private universe stuff. Is still working at Harvard and still doing stuff um, related to this. So, um, so it's yeah, it's it's an ongoing project, right? This idea, um, but really, that the idea of the private universe was hey, kids have misconceptions and they're really robust. And um, so we as teachers need to know that and we need to figure out, I mean, basically the argument in this article and the argument in the private universe is we need to find a bunch of things that are really disruptive of their conceptions. And those things, if we can put them in front of kids, will disrupt their conceptions. And then we give them the correct answer, the correct alternative, and they'll they'll change they'll right. they'll reconceptualize it based on this correct formulation and would, because would, we're rational creatures yeah
1: and and that's i would say where you know i went through we both went through you know methods classes right after this right and i would say that methods courses at the time were about you know Being sort of a magician, right? I would argue that what what we were doing, like the discrepant event was the thing, right? Like the discrepant event is the, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, demonstration, some sort of example, some sort of lab that you could provide for students that they couldn't explain with their prior misconception that they, if they tried to predict, and this is like, you would have them do, you know, outline what the demonstration is going to do, have them make a prediction, right? POE, and then, POE. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. You no know, prediction, observation, and then explanation. Right. Yeah, so that's, there that's, it that's is. and that explanation was rational, right. And it was going to be intelligible. And then it would help them go, Ooh, I, I, I that doesn't that's make sense. That's where the
0: transformation
1: happens. That, Yep. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that is a really good lead in into these, you know, conditions of accommodation, right? I think that's because it's it, I think it, you know, builds off that. So first off, it says, there must be disf- dissatisfaction with the existing conceptions. So that's where you know we set this prediction, right? And then they do this observation, and then they go, "Oh, my my explanation doesn't fit that. My I didn't predict that that was going to happen." So that's where you know some dissatisfaction is happening, right? And so then this new explanation this thing that we provide must be intelligible so that's condition number 2 is that the the new conception must be intelligible and 3 a new conception must appear in initially plausible
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and initially then initially
0: plausible
1: initially plausible and you know and then mm-hmm. cuz this is the thing that all you know, students are doing this condition number four is a new concept
0: should suggest the possibility of a fruitful research program. Yeah, I mean, whenever I'm thinking about right, like anything really, I'm like, right. wait, is that a fruitful research program?
1: Or right. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. We're trying to be unbiased, right? We're trying, I I'm, I think Failing. you're doing a better job than I am. am I? Okay. I don't know, I don't know. And And so, yeah, I think that, you know, maybe the first two conditions are, you know, I don't know, but then they jump right to like yeah. special relativity and it's like,
0: Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, they, yeah, they, they do more. I mean, the, the thing that I think is, is less attended to um, in this article, generally when we talk about it, is the next section, which is this features of a conceptual ecology. And I don't know that we need to go into that. Um, I don't think so either. Yeah. But I do think, um, you know, yeah. So I think these four characteristics or these four criteria that, you know uh, are the foundation of what they're saying is the conceptual change model is um is yeah i mean you can hear the rationality in it right like it it's there's and and as you joked about the last one be you know the criteria of a fruitful research program being something that people consider now you know they may be talking about higher education and the students in this may be phd students in physics so that may be why you know they're using that as criteria 4 and then Later on, that gets backed away from in a more, you know, just the idea of it being fruitful in a general sense, um, which is to say productive or useful or somehow explanatory. Um But I think the thing that we, I think we all recognize, or certainly I recognize in myself and in others is that this is not the way learning works. Like we, we do not learn in this, like, okay, I have new information. Hmm. Am I dissatisfied with, and I, and I know they're not actually saying that we do that in a conscious way, but I'm pretty sure we don't even do it in an unconscious way. I think there's lots of ways that our learning happens but it isn't through um, it isn't through this sort of rational application of of our own um, our own notions to ideas and then seeing that they don't work and then because as we talked we've talked about previously learning sure. is so contextual right it's yeah. it's not abstracted it's not like you're you're thinking in some abstracted way you're always thinking in the moment in the context about the thing that's in front of you and that. While there may be some rationality to that, the idea that that's going to lead to something that's you know like big and abstracted through a rational process just it it doesn't doesn't comport with my understanding of the way things work. So I think right. I think that I think they uh the big like if you
1: want to find the Achilles heel with conceptual change, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's it's transfer, right? I mean, because like that, I would argue is there. I mean, that's Achilles heel for probably a lot of stuff, because like when as soon as you move something from one area to another, right, then they when students are going, you know, I can't apply that here, Mm -hmm. then it shows that they haven't really from their point of view accommodated it. Right. They really haven't. So um, and it shows the contextual nature of learning. Right. It shows like which kind of, you know, yeah. Does that, well, does
0: that make sense? it goes back to, yeah, it goes back to the brown cones and do good. And the, uh, right. you know, the weight watchers example with the cottage cheese that we talked about so much in the other episode, sure, yeah. where it's like, well, I don't know how to do f- multiplying fractions in a context where I don't understand that the assignment is, is multiplying fractions. I just have to figure out how much cottage cheese. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so I, so that, I think that's exactly right. Like you, it doesn't take into account or at least, and maybe they're not trying to, um, but it's it's really um yeah it's it's really interesting how um you know just very rational and again these are science people and that's part of the reason for all the rationality they're they're science people so they say well you know if we're rational creatures then the process that we go through to learn must be rational too and you know rationality as they're constructing it uh, you know or as they're talking about it is a thing that humans took you know millennia to develop at least at this level of complexity so so to think that that's how human learning works seems also a little bit bananas
1: well i th- I think that you know some of this is influenced by the fact that these are historians of science right because yeah, for sure they they're trying to map how people learn or how people develop to how science itself is developed over time, like with science you know you know if we look at i don 't know um mechanics, right? Like in, in, you know, like our understanding of motion, um, you know, we had a very different perspective of motion through the through time, right? We, and so when we were introduced with new ideas, we replaced them with other ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And so little by little, we, that's where we got this current understanding of motion. And, and I think that, and I, I'm saying this because I remember reading a a book written by a colleague of both of ours that talked about conceptual change from it was specifically this and it was from uh, uh rick Duschel mm-hmm. who wrote a book about how these these two things were parallel with people's understanding of development was very similar to how you know the changes and revolutions are happening in, in science and sure uh, and I, I wonder whether we would – is is Rick still in that, like, in that, like, sort of – I think generally
0: what, speaking, I mean, it, he's – he you know, he that's his background too. In, in, yeah. And he was a history and philosopher – is, I shouldn't say was, he is a history and philosophy of science and science education person. And um, I think that's how he would define his work and how he would define his professional identity. So I think, yeah, this is – these were his people, right? I mean, he, right. he's of – he's younger than them a little bit, but he, he's of their generation of scholars and brought up through, you know, educational psychology as, as a foundation and then being history and philosophy um, people. So that's, that's the sort of stew that you're getting here is educational psychology and history and philosophy of science sort of cooked together and you get, you get this, um, you know, conceptual change. Um, And, you know, just to be clear this, and we've said it before, but, there were probably 20 years where you probably couldn't even get an article published if it wasn't based in conceptual change. I mean, it was, it was absolutely the dominant paradigm. Um, and, uh, so, so it's, and, and for that reason it has, and, uh, and I'll say in, you know, 91, 92, when I first read this stuff, you know, it felt revolutionary to me. Even the idea that people construct their own understandings, and that you know, that's what you want. To, I mean, it it influenced the way that I thought initially as a teacher, um, and and what teaching was because because it's a it's a powerful idea. But lots of powerful ideas um have have flaws in them, um, and it doesn't mean that it's a right idea. Um, it just means that it's an it that it's a a theory that that helps us understand some things.
1: Yeah. And so I guess the question, maybe this is introspective on, uh, but what what was the thing that caused you to make that, that, that change? Like, where did you make the shift was like, cause I mean, this is certainly, you know, was the, this is how we were taught to teach science, right? This is yeah. like, we came up through, you know, we had methods courses in which, you know, the discrepant events was the primary form of, of learning. And then, um, yeah. And then, we I don't know if that's how either of us would describe how we teach or how we would encourage other
0: people to teach now,
1: right? And no,
0: it's definitely not. I mean, right. it is explicitly but, not that way, right. Yeah, right, I right, agree. right,
1: right. And and so um what's what
0: caused the change for you, you know? My conceptual change. Is that what you're yes? Yeah, that's
1: what, the, what was that? Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I saw what uh-huh. you're doing
0: there. You're not gonna get me with that. Uh, well what I would say, Ali, is it's been a long time period of enculturation that it's not sure. a conceptual change it's a yeah i mean i think in fairness it's it's a. um you saw what i was doing there yeah i did <laughs> i saw i saw the tiger trap with all this oh, uh, th- spikes in the bottom <laughs> i was like i'm not going over that this is not my first rodeo <laughs> um yeah so i think um i think it's I've, a gradual shift i think the whole time i was a teacher honestly i probably had a conceptual change notion of teaching um and i don't think i was exposed to the ideas of like communities of practice and Jay Lemke's work on discourse or any of that stuff until I got to graduate school. Um, I could be wrong about that because I can't, I mean, the first person who probably started me down this road was um, uh, Biff Barrett, who was a professor at, at uh, Michigan, when I was getting my teaching certificate and he taught the methods courses there. And he was a former psychometrician turned phenomenologist Um, And so his methods course was fast. That's quite a shift. That's quite a shift. And, and I, and I had a lot of respect for him. um, And, um, and he was, he was a fantastic professor. And I'm sure that was the beginning of me starting to think about, well, wait a minute, maybe all this, you know, putting people in bins and mark, you know, counting them with numbers and stuff and all that is maybe not as productive or useful as we think it is. Um, But I think that said, you know, it takes a long time to grapple with this. And I think, I think one of the fundamental shifts that that I'm probably still making, and that certainly I know students and people that I work with are making, is like conceptual changes as a as a notion is so ground into us. It's so much about it's so fundamental to the way that we think that it's very difficult to to reconceptualize. You see, I even use the language when I say it. Right. Well, reconceptualize. But I think that you know
1: it's the like not to take this outside of science education, but I'm going to, it's, I think that, you know, these like the paradigm shifts, the explanations. I mean, this is the, you know, idea that if we go on the internet and fight, on social media with people who disagree with us, we'll just be able to provide them a good enough explanation that they're going to shift. They're going to make the, these, this, they're going to accommodate our beliefs or our understandings of the world because we just present it in an intelligible way that's plausible for them. And we all, if you've ever been in, you know, a fight with some, somebody on social media, you know, that that is just not the way it works. Right. right? And that it's, it's about like a lot of the, 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 changes that happen in terms of learning are because they we have long term conversations with people who you know share us with, with us alternate ways of seeing the world and that we get inculturated through that. And I think that's uh you know
0: that's yeah. Right. So it's yeah. I mean they would probably say like conceptual change people would probably say, well the problem with that, the social media is that those people aren't dissatisfied with their current explanation. Right. right. And so as long as you're not dissatisfied with your current explanation, then no matter what evidence is put before you, you're not likely to shift your notions, right? Um, So yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a good point. And, um, and I think this, you know, this, it it is really interesting to see how they, they're very much in the beginning, you can see that, you can see the beginnings, the sort of inklings of the idea that um, this isn't, teaching is not just about I'm telling you a thing and you're remembering a thing. So they're recognizing that that the learner is an active agent. And I think that in and of itself is something worth considering um, and powerful. But I do think, you know, like uh, uh, one other section on 225 at the bottom, they talk about teaching strategies. And they start with this sort of critique of current strategies. And they say that is teaching is for recall and assimilation, Right. So they're critiquing the current way that we teach. And then two sentences later, they describe how this their revolution is going to occur. And they say, develop lectures, demonstrations, problems, and labs that can be used to create cognitive conflict. So they they basically say, yeah, everything about the teaching is fine. It's just that you're not understanding that they've got to create cognitive conflict. So it's right. you could still do the lectures, demonstrations, the problem sets, the labs that you've been doing all this time. You just need to tweak them a little bit so that they focus on cognitive conflict. So this after all this like, "Oh, we have this revolutionary new way to think about, you know, learners as active agents who construct their own understanding and it's this rational process." Then they end up with like, "Oh, yeah, well, just do better lectures." So, um Yeah, I think that's you know the teacher's role is clarifier of ideas and presenter of information is clearly clearly not adequate, right? So they they are saying that this like stand in front, but then like what do you do? Well, you're a Socratic tutor, right?
1: That I like that the they they use a different term. They say an adversary,
0: adversary in the sense of a Socratic tutor, right? Yeah. But this is, I mean, here, here is where you hear the sage on a sage, guide on a side language that was pervasive and still is. I mean, people are sure. still using that turn of phrase, maybe still are. Right. So that's, that's this language, right? Like you're not the person standing up in front telling you're the person standing next to, but, but their notion of standing next to is you develop lectures, demonstrations, problems, and labs. Sure. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's a uh, it's a shift, but not much of one, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, it, 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 you know, this is the tricky thing is looking back on it from our privileged situation of being 40 years after right. this thing was published, wow. like we can say, ah, it wasn't that big a shift. I'm sure in the moment it felt tectonic. Um, it felt massive, right? Because it's like, wait, you're saying kids actually don't just remember the stuff that we tell them they're constructing this stuff and they're constructing it in a rational way. And if we recognize that we can change the way that we teach and take advantage of that. I mean, that's, that's potentially really powerful. And, you know, these shifts in the way that we understand things have to take a long time. Like, you know, going back to your point about special relativity, like special relativity, quantum mechanics, some of these revolutionary paradigm shifting um, theories, it's not like everybody just accepted them as soon as they were published. Like they took decades and to, for people to get their heads around them and then start to think about what they actually mean for the field. So I think you're seeing, you see the same thing in education, right? Like, it's not like, Oh, we're going to introduce this new idea and suddenly we're all just going to nod our heads and accept it. Um, And again, the complexity of that in education is even worse because the, the data, the evidence that we can gather is so culturally embedded. Like it's not, it's not like atoms and, and molecules. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but that, you know, atoms, helium atoms pretty much behave the same way all the time, everywhere in the planet. Um, That ain't true about kids. Um, So, so, so it gets, it's harder with educational theory to shift it because you believe what you believe and the evidence is not as, as clear as it would be in science. And even in science, it's hard. So, anything we, anything else we want to say about this before we put it to bed, like, uh, no, I don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we can use it as a touch point now to, to return sure. to when necessary. But, um, but I think it was a good idea to step back to this because, because um, we were talking about theories really that followed this, yeah. and you can argue build on it in some respects um, because they do. You know, this idea of the active learner and grappling with what the learner's role is in a teaching context is, is really like, they do, they do put that on the table in a pretty serious way. Right. And right. that I don't think really has been done before, which is why this thing, you know, talk about citations. This thing has like 8,500 citations, right. right. Which again, oh, yeah. is, like there are scholars who hope that in their whole career, they get that many citations. And this is just the one article has that many citations. Yeah. So this and- is massively influential.
1: Well, and I think there are, like, I, as I'm looking over, like, some of the, the the teaching strategies they 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 offer, I think that there's, you know, there's one that I think is probably regardless of where, like, where you, you want to put your flag in terms of, you know, your understanding that you, one, you know, wants yeah. to put their flag in terms of their understanding of how people learn, you know, this is one that, you know, translates. It says, help students make sense of science con- science content by representing content in multiple modes. And by helping students translate from one mode of representation to another. And I, I'm like, yeah, that, that could probably, you know, I could get yeah. behind that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. you know, from a universal design and for learning perspective, that would be something that, you know, I think some UDL people would be like, yeah, that, that's good stuff. And so, right. I mean, you have to sift through a lot to get to that, right? But, yeah.
0: And and you still have to, I mean, still the active agent in that is the, teacher, the teacher.
1: right. right? Representing, yeah, I mean, Yeah.
0: The teacher's doing the representing and the teacher's doing the translation or helping of the translation from one mode to another. And I think there's also a presumption that that means that the representations are correct, right? Right. So you're translating from one correct mode of tra- representation to another. So See,
1: that, there you are taking us back historically to where this was written in time, where I'm like mm-hmm. looking at it from today and going, this is what I'm seeing in this. And, you know, no, it's I def- think you,
0: I think it's more that you did a generous interpretation. I was of I that, was try- I was trying I to, was trying to say, nah. you were you know what you're doing. You were poo pooing it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> poo poo is a recurring character.
1: <laughs> it is. So. That's what you're doing they have um,
0: returned poo-poo
1: poo-poo all right Poo-pooing. all right so well, on that note uh, g- g- good night uh conceptual good, change good night, moon. good night yeah good night posner and strike and yeah. houston yeah dirt sog yeah. yeah
0: yeah the big four as we like right there's so, <laughs> so so claps good. for the big four
1: uh no no <laughs> no no, so. no claps no um all right i uh joyce you have any choice I, I would like you
0: to start with Joyce.
1: This week. I have one that I want to emphatically encourage people to wow. like, yes. So uh, it's going to be like when, when this hits, uh, you know, the podcast world. Um, podcast as we like. Yes, to go on. When this, when this episode drops, it will probably be a couple of weeks into this, the dominance of the show, but I'm hoping that it continues sweet tooth. Sweet Tooth. Check out Sweet Tooth on Netflix. Watch it. It's awesome. Um, It's based on a graphic novel series by Jeff Lemire. Um, It is awesome. I was like, really? So, you know, there's a lot of this happening in, in, you know, uh, media right now where they're taking, um, you know, this is where the boys, you know, invincible. uh, Invincible, Jupiter's Legacy, all of these things um, are being taken from graphic novels and transitioning. And I would say some of them are disappointing. Like I was really excited for Jupiter's Legacy because I read that series a bunch of years ago. And it's a Mark Millar, you know, book and book series. And it was largely disappointing. Um, But Sweet Tooth, which, you know, goes over like six different books. And it is really a great story from the from the graphic novels and netflix did an awesome job an awesome job of transitioning this into and what is cool is the storyline itself in the books are it's rather adult there are parts where it's rather adult mm-hmm. it can be violent it can be um adult themed because like a couple of the characters come from you know the you know their um adult entertainers and things and Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. they they've made it much more kid-friendly because they want to like lean into the story they want to lean into the story of acceptance and inclusion that really is at the heart of this and and i think that was a really good change and they've made a lot of really significant changes in terms of characters um, not just from like like a race or gender standpoint, but also like shifting like you know who's related to who and 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 things, and it's a different story. So I have no idea where it's going. Um, I mean, it ends up in a different place. The first ser- season, which I'm hoping there's a second season, uh, the first season ends pretty much in the same place as the end of the first book, um, but how they got there is a little different, like well, pretty significantly different, and and I think that's uh, awesome. That is awesome. So check it out, Sweet Tooth, uh, Netflix. Um, I think there are eight episodes in season one. Awesome stuff. Awesome sauce.
0: Excellent. Well, I I'm struggling here because I have one that I could follow that with that I think is good, but I have another. I'm I'm really struggling here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna save that one I think because right. I think it. So I'm gonna give you a very straightforward one. I'm also I'm, the other reason I'm ambivalent about this one is I'm afraid that by revealing it. This is a thing that can be can be used up and I don't want people to use it up. Oh, wow. Uh, so here's what I'm saying. Peanut butter covered JoJo's from Trader Joe's. Oh, so, uh, yeah. OK, so I don't know what friend, this is. I Well, I didn't either. A friend of mine sent me a picture of a box of these and was like, if you can find these, you must get them and you must kill whoever is necessary to get wow. as many as you can. I think he said it a little gentler than that, but it was pretty close to that level of commitment. So um, so I went to Trader Joe's and got two boxes of these things. And I sent one with my daughter because she was going away for a week, and then I kept one. Um, and these things are really amazing. So I, I just want to tell you the basics. It's basically an Oreo cookie, but oh. they can't call they can't call it that. So they call, so they call it, jo- it Jojo jo- Jojo's. Okay. This particular varietal has peanut butter filling and then it is dipped in peanut butter and then it has some little bit of chocolate drizzled on top but it's almost irrelevant so they're they're very rich like um my wife you may know her christine um she took one bite and was like wow these things i don't know if i can eat these but you on the other hand (laughs) i I do not have that problem (laughs) uh I'm trying to restrain myself from eating a box at a time, but they are very good. I strongly recommend them if you have a Trader Joe's near you. If you're in state college, please don't go to Trader Joe's and buy this because (laughs) I I do not want to go and find that they've all been bought up. Um, That would make me sad. That's that would awesome. not bring me joy, but I I strongly recommend peanut butter covered Jojos. They are available now, and my my understanding of these things is that they're you know the way Trader Joe's works is sometimes these things just disappear for a while. So you know you never know. You gotta you gotta get them while they're hot.
1: So if you're yeah. one of the dozen listeners out there, you know this we'll keep this as our secret. Yeah, don't, but you know some
0: them. of those people are in-state college, right? Yeah, I mean just statistically, um, in the same way that there's got to be some in Hummelstown. Slash sure. slash well we lancaster have a little county. bit of a
1: we have a little bit of a hike to go to a trader joe's there's not one like in our like we have to mm. i think there's one in lancaster so it's a little bit of a hike so
0: okay. well it may i'll not be worth it probably not worth it for you then you just <laughs> oh yeah you're like never mind, never mind. <laughs> Don't go. i'm I'm getting in the car driving to lancaster <laughs> county right now yes. trader joe's <laughs> Trader joe's. uh yeah so uh so that's that's my current uh that's my, awesome joy yeah
1: so you, you can watch Sweet Tooth and be a Sweet know, Tooth that, at the same time. Yeah, see, uh, that was
0: the connection there. <laughs> that's it, great. Yeah. Did you did you know I was gonna do that? You know I was gonna go there. I, I figured you would because oh. it's too it's too much of a softball, man. It's right there for you. It was. It was right there. It's like just setting up there waiting for you to mm. say, We're in our prime again and I gotta hit this <laughs> one out of the park. <laughs> well, you know, that's what I bring for the show. <clears throat> yeah. There they go. That's huh. yeah. 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 I mean, Good stuff that, that's your gift. So that's episode 44 in the 44 books. In the books, yeah. nice, and we'll see you next time. In between, see you then. In between, take care.